0: Before we start, we wanna say a quick thank you to Wharton FinTech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. I'm an MBA candidate at the Wharton School and an MA candidate at the Lauder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania. Our guest today is Mark Weiser. He's a co-founder and managing director of RPM Ventures, a seed and early stage venture firm where he focuses on investing in mobility and fintech companies. Prior to forming RPM, he was an internet and software entrepreneur. He co-founded and led the technology development at Quantum Shift, a provider of web-based B2B technology. And over the last 15 years, he has served on over 20 boards of directors. In addition to his role at RPM, he is also a member of the board of NASA, the Space Agency, and serves on the board of the James Beard Foundation. Mr. Weiser graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan with a B.Sc. in Aerospace Engineering and an MBA with the highest honors. And now, without further ado, let's dive into my conversation with the fascinating Mark Weiser. Mark, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background?
1: Yeah, you bet. So I grew up in Northern Virginia. I went to a unique high school in Northern Virginia that was, we joke, we call it nerd high. Those of us that graduated from there, some of us do. Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. And why is that relevant? It's relevant because I had always planned to be an engineer and to be involved in deep science of some type and ended up going to the University of Michigan for primarily two reasons. One is they had the best aerospace engineering program in the world and had wanted to be an astronaut, quite literally, also because I was in the track team, I got a a spot on the track team. And I was also a college athlete. And so I was working on a PhD at, at Michigan and NASA laid off in the early 90s, uh, started laying off uh, uh, tens of thousands of engineers. And so I realized there was probably not a future for me in NASA or in, in space. And I got really lucky and I met a Michigan alumni who in 1994, he, he said to me, he goes, well, do you know what the internet is? And I said, Yeah, I knew what the internet was because we used it in, in school even back then. So well, I just invested in these three guys that are going to help people buy and sell things on the internet. Would you be interested in meeting them? And next thing I know, I'm one of the first employees at this company that's the first online payment system, and we are figuring out how to do credit card transactions before there was encryption, before there was the levels of security we had now. I did everything from help bring on merchants onto the Internet for the first time. People had never sold anything on the Internet back then. It was interesting what was getting sold. You can imagine, there were the things we could talk about and the things we didn't talk about. and And more importantly, starting to bridge that world between the early innovators in the internet and and the financial services world, which was, you know, I was spending time at every place from the American Bankers Association to EDS and First Data, who were the big credit card transaction processors, working with banks in Texas and in, in California. And, you know, there was no playbook for what we were doing. I mean, internet was new, but so was internet and anything related to the financial services industry. And so I was really fortunate in that I the company went public in December of '96. Uh, the CEO took me on the roadshow with him and the CFO. Uh, I often joke it was half to carry his bags and half because having a twenty-something-year-old internet technologist going public in '96 was sort of the way you presented yourself. So uh, I got to, to see this amazing, uh, amazing, go through this amazing experience. And I don't know whether it was hubris or it was uh, the times, but two weeks after the IPO, I I left the company, I quit. Um, And I started my own company with two other people. Uh, We raised about $140 million for that company. It was one of the first SaaS companies before it was even called SaaS. It was called Application Service Provider. I was the first of the three founders to leave the company. Um, I left for, well, her name is Mary, and she lived back in Michigan, and I lived in Silicon Valley. Um, and I had been commuting for a while, and um, I decided that she was going to be the, the 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 thing I prioritized in my life at that point. besides, I'd just taken a company public a few years earlier. I thought it was easy. I everybody could do this. so um, I stayed on the board of that company, but but moved back to Michigan and when I came back to Michigan, I wasn 't sure what to do next, so I decided to try business school. That was interesting because i I didn't spend as much time in class as I did working on my Prior companies still on the board and or looking at new investments, I made my first angel investment that was in a company called StarMine, which was happens to be in the fintech space before, again, we called it fintech. Um, that was a company that used big data to look at at how good the analysts were at uh, predicting the earnings of companies. So we came up with a new way to do the consensus estimate. That was a guy out of Stanford, Joe Gatto, who was a big data scientist out of Stanford before, again, he was called big data scientist. Because that was my first angel investment. We ended up selling that one and doing pretty well on it in the long haul. And then uh, I got the bright idea to start a venture fund and started it in 2000, probably the worst time in history to start a venture fund. Maybe now might be worse, but that was pretty bad at that point. I was as bad as it got. But I decided to start it in the Midwest, where Mary lived. Uh, My family all eventually converged back on Ann Arbor, where I, I decided to settle down commuted back and forth from Ann Arbor to Silicon Valley since. And, um, when I started the fund, there were a few things that we did. One is we wanted to make sure that we were really focused on the entrepreneurs that we worked with It was one of the bad experiences I had with my VCs. When they were investors, I often joked that that second company, despite the amount of capital we raised, it was my successful failure. I learned a lot from that experience. You can still see the crater of that company from outer space. It did not go well. But I learned a lot and and, and had a venture completely demystified for me. So as a venture capitalist, I wanted to behave differently than my investors did. And, And the biggest thing for me in doing that was making sure that I put my portfolio companies first, that I spent a lot of time getting to know my entrepreneurs and vice versa, so that we built a great relationship with both directions. Because if things go well, you're going to be together for a decade. And if things don't go well, you better have a great relationship to work through it. And even on my very best days as an entrepreneur, I still remember them as hanging by the cliff by my fingernails, screaming to the top of my lungs. So as a result, one of the things that we did that was unique uh, when I started the fund was I decided that the general partners of the fund would be the largest investors in the fund. And that still remains true to this day. So 20 years later, four funds later, we have, uh, I guess, about $500 million under, under management now at this point. And the partners are 35 percent of the capital, um, and that causes us to behave differently. We're not angel investors; we still have LPs. You know, we think of every dime we put out, though, because it's also coming out of our own pockets as well, um, and it's a significant amount in in the fund for us, and it's a significant amount for the fund. So, again, I think it it changes our behavior and gives us the luxury of making the relationships that we have with our entrepreneurs our top priority. So. Um, and then today, RPM really invests in two spaces, mobility and fintech. And that's been our primary focus for well over a decade. We've invested in both spaces since the beginning. But back in 2010, we we chopped it down to just mobility and fintech. So there there we are today. That's That's fascinating.
0: I want to come back to mobility and fintech. But before we go there... So you've had a front row seat to the fintech industry for a while now, close to three decades at this point. You know, Has it evolved in the direction that you expected it? Uh, has it surprised you? What's your impression of the industry?
1: So it hasn't surprised me in the sense that because of the fact that I was trained first by internet entrepreneurs, even though we were in the financial services space doing payment processing, et cetera. The reality is, is that we knew that these big, stagnant industries had to change. There was, it was sort of phased, right? In the beginning, we were the, uh, the upstarts and trying to force change, and it was really hard to push it through. And then e-commerce caught on in the mid-2000s especially. I mean, I know it was before that, but it caught on, and that kind of dragged everything else along with it. Right. I mean, you think about the fact that today, some companies, you can do everything digitally and some companies still behave as if they were in the 90s. So we're not all the way there. I think if there was a surprise, it's the fact that we're not all the way there, but despite the length of time, but I knew it was gonna take a long time. So that part I'm not surprised by, but 25 years later, I would have thought it would have all been done. So it, it's, it just shows how somewhat intractable the industry is Um, and how much resistance to change there is. But when you get it there, once the change is made, they don't go back, right? It's not like we're going to regress to the past. What we have today is the foundation for what we'll continue to build from, and I think it'll only go faster. Yeah, that that, that, mix, yes.
0: That makes sense. And so going back to the industries that you look at, fintech and and mobility, what's your reasoning behind that?
1: Well, uh, you know... Data, really. When we started RPM, we ran a couple of different strategies, and we got a decade into it, and we realized there were only two things that we were good at and everything else we stank at. I realized anything direct-to-consumer not, had no success in it. Anything uh, in pure industrial, no good at. Uh, anything in, in sort of HR or stuff like that, we were okay at but not great at. But if you looked at our track record around fintech, you look at our track record around mobility, which is transportation, logistics, automotive, et cetera. That's where we had all our wins. So it was as easy as you had to get 10 years into it and then look back and realize, wait, no, let's not do these other things. Let's just do the two things we're really good at. So data.
0: Got it. And, and speaking of track record, uh, what are some of the companies that you're most proud of that RPM invested in?
1: You know, I, It's like asking somebody what child is their favorite child, all of them, even the ones that failed. I don't look back and regret any of our investments. Everyone has been a, you know, you're constantly learning. So there are certainly some that are higher profile than others. But the funny thing is, is I I can't even say that even the high profile ones were that we had completely 100% clear visibility into what they were going to become. I mean, the reality is, is everybody, you know, I love when entrepreneurs tell the story of like, oh, this was all planned and they look back, and it was like all logical and they got there. No, we often describe, honestly, the way things work is most startups that win are the ones that generally fall over in the right direction and then pick themselves back up and then fall over again in the right direction. And the one that does it fastest is the one that wins, which is to say, you, you never really know exactly what direction you're going to take when you start these things. So I think there's certainly ones like SoFi that are super high profile, but when we started that one, it was with a very different concept. It was a great team and we knew we wanted to play in student loans to start, but the the model we had on day one is not the model is the company today um, and is not the model that really that we got traction with that allowed us to become the company that it is today. So it's certainly higher profile and I'm proud of the way the team performed, but there's no single investment that I'm more proud of than any other.
0: Got it. And and that's, the example of SoFi is interesting because you were amongst the very first investors. Yeah. Right. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the early days of SoFi and, and your involvement
1: with them. Sure. So we were fortunate in that I had backed an entrepreneur whose name is Adam Boyden. He's now one of my partners. He was a Stanford graduate, class of 99. I backed a lot of entrepreneurs out of the class of 99 at Stanford, oddly enough, um, in a variety of companies. But Adam um, was—he's a fantastic entrepreneur, and he became—he was one of the first entrepreneurs we invested in. Obviously, oddly enough, in a transportation company. It was an online marketplace for the sale of off lease vehicles, and we did quite well with that when we sold it and 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 got a good return. And Adam went on to do several more startups, but he became a venture partner of ours in 2008, and I want to say probably uh, 2009-ish or so. Um, he'd come up with an idea around uh, auto insurance that used um, social relationships to reduce moral hazard. And we did ended up not per- pursuing that uh, idea because of the regulatory issues around uh, uh, auto insurance. But he happened to bump into these guys at Stanford who had come up with a very similar notion for student loans. And that was the four founders of, of SoFi. So we met Mike Cagney, and he had put together a bunch of small angel investors. He he had come from the hedge fund world, so he knew a lot of investors. So it wasn't like he was going to have trouble raising money. But he did take on three uh, venture investors, Steve Anderson from Baseline, DCM, Doll Capital Management, and, and RPM. And the basic initial model was we were going to get alumni from universities to lend money into a pool or put money into a pool that would be, then be lent to the incoming MBA students for the top 20 universities. The idea being that if you were borrowing money from a, an alumni of your school who is likely to help you find your first job, that you were more than likely to to make sure you paid it off and to behave, behave well. Plus, there was some selection bias in being the top 20 schools and You would help reduce your cost of acquiring the the, the borrowers because they'd want to borrow money from the alumni to to help create that stronger bond. I mean, you're at Wharton, you understand what that bond is like and and how the alumni base is important to you. So that was the initial strategy, and it launched at Stanford and Harvard uh, successfully. But then the real question was could we take it to other schools? Mike and I went on a roadshow between Michigan and Illinois, targeting Northwestern Chicago and the University of Michigan. And we struggled to get alumni to put money into a pool. And that's when we realized, I don't think this is necessarily going to work. And then I got the bright idea to suggest to Steve Anderson, who was on the board, that maybe we needed somebody to to help with some biz dev pieces of the business and maybe look at the business in a different way. And I suggested that he, he asked me, you know, who I had in mind or if I had a model for it. And I said, well, you know, somebody like Adam Boyden, who was my venture partner, right? And Adam was just coming off of his another business he had just sold. Steve quite literally said, That's interesting, and hung up. I mean, hung up on me. An hour later, I get a call from Adam saying, I just got the strangest call from Steve Anderson. What do you think? And I'm like, Oh my God, I, <laughs> you know, I didn't realize he was going to call you. But Steve and, and Adam were in the same class at Stanford. And I guess it had never occurred to him that. As my venture partner, I might be the one to call Adam, but I got to avoid blame for it for a while, and, and Adam turned. Adam joined SoFi as the COO. It was after that that, that Nino and Mike, Nino Fanlo, the CFO, and Mike Tagney, and uh, Adam pivoted the business around refinancing student loans, and then it took off, and it became a very different company. But a lot of the same core premises stayed with us. One. Not so much the reduction of moral hazard from the social connection, but the reduction of moral hazard by, through selection bias. So we stayed focused on the top universities. The second thing we stayed focused on was the cost of acquisition. And this is a thread or a theme you'll see, but almost in all of our fintech investments, we fundamentally believe they, with the lowest cost of acquisition, is going to win. And so while the original model was to use the alumni of a university to, to attract the borrowers, Instead, we started using corporations to find the graduates from the top schools who were in great jobs to attract people that wanted to refinance. So we, in a lot of ways, were able to still maintain that cost of acquisition of of near zero for the first several years. It just, it came through a different route. So some basic things remain the same about the company, despite the fact that how we delivered the product was very different. So those parts remain the same. But that that was the, the how SoFi got going and the, the part of the story that, that isn't told as much, and it's that fall over in generally the right direction and pick ourselves back up part. And and we did that a couple of times there, and, and then it got traction. And it, since then, it's been a, a jargon on it.
0: That's interesting. Do you maintain a similar relationship with other portfolio companies, which sounds like a close relationship, a close partnership.
1: Always. In fact, it's a requirement for us. And in fact, one of the things that's interesting, because we are the largest investors in our own fund, we actually really, we have to take a whole team approach. There's no deal that's my deal or Adam's deal or Tony's deal. And so that means all three of us work with almost every one of our portfolio companies. And in fact, the CEOs feel confident calling whichever one of the three partners they need based on what's going on. So Mike Cagney started a new company and and whichever one of the three of us need to be involved with that. Daily Pay, which is uh, another one of our fintech companies. Again, each of us brings something different to the table on those companies. Whichever ones of us need to work or, or help them on something at that time, we will. And it can be on anything from the basic stuff like, oh, we'll help you with biz dev or hiring, or it could be deeper stuff like, okay, we have an expertise in some part of the insurance world, right? Adam knows the mechanics of insurance better, but I happen to know the 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 data of of insurance better. So depending on what the company needs at that point in time, one of us will roll up our sleeves and, and get involved. And, and Tony is, as we like to joke, he's our Vulcan with the numbers. So he's constantly looking at the, the KPIs of the companies to make sure that they're not losing their way from that perspective. So yeah, we stay pretty involved with all of them.
0: That makes sense. And after so many years of, of dealing with founders, investing in founders, have you developed a set of patterns that you look for?
1: Yeah. So we absolutely know what an RPM entrepreneur looks like. If I had a British accent, like my partner, Adam, this would probably sound better, but the way I, I always like to use his description first, because it's far more amusing. But We look for entrepreneurs that can run up the beach at the machine gun nest while simultaneously biting the heads off of chickens. So um, what for me that means, though, is people that have the discipline to understand this is not an easy job. Um, Startups are supposed to be hard. You're supposed to stumble and fall a lot. You don't want to, but it's going to happen. And that stumbling and falling helps you fall over in the right direction so that you can get better, right? had we not had, if we had stuck with just Harvard and Stanford and scaled those schools only at SOFI, we would have never realized, or we would have realized far too down the line uh, or too late that there there wasn't the same connection for alumni to other top schools, including Kellogg and and Chicago and Michigan and or Ross, I should say, and 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 even Wharton. So. The fact that we tried that on early told us that we needed to pivot. And so having that discipline is really important, the discipline to recognize, you know, you can't just bet on those two schools and scale them. We got to go make sure there's a real market there for it. But, you know, so it's supposed to be tough. Uh, you have the discipline to work through it. But you also need to be half crazy because one of the rules for us that we also have is our best companies, frankly, and now it's our it's a primary rule for us is um, they have to have no rational chance of success. Right. When a great startup comes along and everybody says, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Rather, a startup comes along and their idea, everybody says that makes total sense. Well, if you fund it, then six months later, there's going to be 35 other companies funded and it's the margins going to be gone out of the business and all all of them may fail. If everybody thinks that it's impossible to do, that there's no rational way that this will work, especially people from the industry. If you can figure out a clever way to make it work and you can gut your way through it, which again, takes discipline, but also requires you to be half crazy. If you can do that, by the time everybody's figured out that you're, that you've got it working, you'll be so far ahead. They can't catch you, and there'll be fast followers or as runs or shadows of what the, the, the winner is. And so for us, it, it is a, it, it takes a particular kind of entrepreneur to take that approach. Um, and after 20 years, yeah, we can walk I can walk into an office now and i can I can smell it I can see it I can taste it it's i you know the the culture of the company and you know the kind of entrepreneurs it takes to build the kind of culture that, that can be that disciplined and half crazy at the same time
0: We are leaving living through one of the biggest challenges in history right now right and and it has affected different startups in different ways. Some are actually benefiting, but probably the majority are actually running into, into serious trouble. How are you advising your portfolio companies during this time? And what do, you, what do you envision
1: after this? Well, I think I can simplify it to a few basic observations. One, companies that are later stage, because of the soft bank effect and the, the, the notion that you'd raise tons of capital and go after it, A lot of them got very bloated. And and this isn't just my portfolio. This is all venture-backed startups. This is all actually, and actually most of the the large corporations in the United States, 12 years of a bull run has built into most of these companies some pretty excessive bloat. And so no one wants to say it typically, but the reality is, is, I think the cuts that we're seeing, many of them are going to be permanent and probably will be healthier for companies in the long haul. Now, as it relates to venture-backed companies, that also means that we're returning a little more to rational approaches to these things. Scaling at all costs doesn't make sense. It is easy to get lost and see that, hey, I can spend a dollar and make 90 cents all day long. And if I have billions of dollars, I could do that for a very long time. And by the way, that was the big trap of my second company is we raised a ton of money and our contribution margin on every revenue dollar we generated in in a lot of cases was negative. But we were doing it to get the top line growth because we thought we'd make it back up in network effects once we got scale. And I think that notion may be flawed in a lot of industries. And it certainly is in fintech because in fintech, it starts with its financial services technology. I haven't seen a financial services company anywhere in the history of mankind that could lose money for year after year after year and stay in business. They go out of business. So why should it be any different for a FinTech company? So um, even in enabling platforms, it still doesn't make sense because you should be bringing a better, more efficient way to do things. So if you can scale at positive contribution margin, it makes sense, but even that's difficult to do in most cases until you get you get some real critical mass. And in in fintech, it takes a long time to get critical mass. So we've seen a, a reduction in, in the number of heads across the board. And in some cases, they were probably cuts that make sense of the long haul because of the blow. And again, it's not politically correct to say, but it's, it's true. Um, if you look at what happens, you know, in two, three years from now, when people look back, they'll say, oh, my gosh, we had too many people. And then the second thing is, I think you'll see this return towards a real focus on contribution margin positive growth. And instead of a grow at all costs, it will be, hey, if I'm getting a dollar for the dollar I spend, that's not attractive even. If I can make a dollar fifty on the dollar I spend, then I have a reason to keep spending money um, and trying to grow. If not, until then, I got to control my burn very tightly. So that's another thing that we're, we're certainly doing across the board. And then the the other big thing that I think people have to be aware of is it was sometimes the case, again, in the SoftBank era, where if you raised enough money, you could artificially grow the whole overall market if there was enough players who were well-financed. I don't think that exists anymore. Now you've got to wait for the market based on its own time. And I go back to what we said at the very beginning about were there any surprises. I knew that fintech was going to be slow growing, not quite as slow as it has been, but I knew it was going to be slow to make that change over. And case in point, you know, it didn't take 25 years for um, us to go to all online payments, but there's still, in, in a lot of cases, but there's still a lot of people who still don't do online payments, right? So I think fintech companies are going to have to be more patient and grow as the market grows. And we're in a recession for sure. I mean, we can call it the Great Pause. We can call it the Depression. Who knows what it's going to be? We will come out of it. And you can't artificially force the growth of the market now. You have to grow as the market grows. So that's the other thing that every startup is going to have to consider is what's an acceptable amount of burn based on how fast you think the market's going to grow. And you'll find companies, I think, that have raised healthy rounds of financing, whereas before they might raise a new one every every 12 to 18 months. Now it could be more like every 24 to 36 months that you raise a round of financing and there are smaller rounds of financing. Or if you just closed one, even more importantly, a lot of the companies that have closed rounds in the last six months or so, they've cut back to levels that look pretty much the same as when they, before they raised money. So that, they're, that new capital will last them a long time so that they can wait to grow with the market.
0: Everyone's going back to basics
1: yeah uh, you know it's closer to bootstrapping and it's you know more austerity, but it's I don't call it basics as it's just it's a reality of trying to build a business in a bear market versus a bull market and a twelve year bull market, you couldn't raise money without hyper growth, so I understand why people did it today. It'll be hard to raise money if you're burning cash left, right, and center. so uh, people will adjust based on that. that makes sense. Yep. Well, Mark, this
0: has been fantastic. Before we go, we'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, your life outside of RPM. I know you have a lot of very interesting involvements, hobbies. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, so the the, the bad news is as an aerospace engineer graduate, I still like to take on really tough problems. And it's probably one of the reasons I became a VC. It's uh, every... I have stuff outside of of venture, but I really find a lot of joy in things like what we're doing at daily pay where we're killing payday lending. Just, just the big, broad picture of that. I enjoy tackling some of those problems and thinking them through at a strategic level or, you know, what we're doing at at figure where we're bringing blockchain to the way that things are, how the way um, securitizations are going to work. Right. And that's, that's an area that's ripe for disruption. Talk about, you know, Intracted in old ways, doing securitizations with lawyers and trust banks and auditors, you know, we can apply technologists, all those. So I spend a lot of time on stuff like that. But then it means that everything I do outside of work is also tends to be thinking about really big problems. So probably the thing that I'm most proud of personally is that it came full circle. And oddly enough, having I built an entrepreneurship center at the University of Michigan and the College of Engineering, the professor I partnered with on it after he left U of M, landed in a position as the Associate Administrator for Science, the Science Directorate at NASA, meaning he controls the largest research budget in the known universe. And he has a board. And after he joined, he, he called me up and said, I, I've got a fantastic board of PhDs or deep scientists, but you know me really well. And I'd love to have your perspective as an investor in some of these deep technologies and autonomy and business processes. And so... I ended up joining the board of NASA two years ago, and that's a pretty extraordinary experience. I get to to, to really see what the future holds for humanity in a lot of ways uh, with respect to how we view the known universe. Um, everything from the science here on Earth to what we're going to do on on Mars and in the moon, our own solar system, and of course, you know the the notion that we're launching satellites that allow us to not just circle the sun and close to the sun, which we've never done before, but also look back in time five billion years, um, which is pretty incredible. So uh, that's a, <laughs> I don't call that a hobby, but uh, I, I it's a pretty uh, I, I'm I'm extraordinarily honored to do it, but it's a lot of fun and it's something that I, I think especially because of companies like Blue Origin's and SpaceX and planet and a variety of other things, we're going to see more people go into. And then the other big area is when people talk about being foodies, there are foodies and there are people who like to eat, there are foodies, and then there are, are people who are a bit insane, like me. I made two. Uh, my first two angel investments, oddly enough, one was in Starmind, the financial services play that I mentioned, it was a big data, the big data play. The other one was in a restaurant in San Francisco called Gary Danko. And that led me down a path of investing in restaurants. And so I'm an investor in about a dozen restaurants in California. And then lo and behold, joined something called the James Beard Foundation, which is a foundation focused on the restaurant industry. We're known for our awards, but we're also doing things like how do we help women entrepreneurs and minority entrepreneurs and and chefs get into the business and build their restaurants. So we have some fantastic training uh, programs there. We've done some great stuff around the quality of food, and not just in restaurants, but, but how everybody is fed. And now, because of COVID, in a lot of ways, it's, um, the James Beard Foundation's mission has become extraordinarily important, oddly enough. No one would think about the restaurant industry this way prior to COVID, but in the very first numbers that came out for unemployment, that first couple of weeks of 20 million, two-thirds of them were from the restaurant industry. The restaurant industry employs a huge number of people in the United States. It's a big part of our economy. People turn to dining together for comfort in times like this. COVID has virtually shut down the restaurant industry. And so the James Beard Foundation, I'm pretty excited about what they're doing. Now our mission includes saving the restaurant industry. Again, uh, like tackling big, hairy problems, whether it's you know student loans or, and killing payday lending, or whether it's how we go back to the moon and what science we do there, or, or how the heck we save the restaurant industry because if it's easy to do, everybody does it. And I like stuff, uh, as I said, has no rational chance of success. So uh, I tend to extend that to everything else that I do. And I ride my bike a lot, but that's, you know, a cliche, to be honest. So, (laughs) uh, but it's good to stay in shape.
0: Fantastic. Well, there's no doubt you have a full plate and amongst many interesting activities. So we're-
1: honored. I, I, I saw what you did there. I saw what
0: you did there. <laughs> we're honored that you joined us and you know, you're always welcome yeah. on campus.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, thanks, I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Mark, we'll be in touch. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all
1: aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.